Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Saturday morning. April 26th, 1986. A helicopter lands on a football pitch in northern Ukraine. It's a big day for FC Stroitl Pripyat. This afternoon, a cup semi-final match will take place in their own modest home ground against FC Borodyanka. But something happened last night. Something big enough to threaten the match. Maybe even the future of FC Stroitl Pripyat itself. Men in high-protection suits clamber out of the helicopter as the Pripyat players and groundsmen look on in confusion. Geiger counter detectors click with audible warnings increasing in speed as the ground is checked for traces of radiation. The men in protective clothing tell the players that the match is off. There's been an incident at the nearby Vladimir Ilyich Lenin nuclear power plant, also known as Chernobyl. The players are told no football will be played today. Pripyat was a commuter town located a couple of miles from the nuclear power plant and approximately 10 miles from the city of Chernobyl. Founded in 1970, Pripyat was a modern and progressive atom town designed to represent the best of the Soviet Union. Stroitl means builder, and Pripyat's football team was formed by men working on the construction of the Chernobyl plant and the town itself, all housed in several tower blocks as part of a population of roughly 50,000. But there wasn't much to do in Pripyat in 1986. It had a cinema, a swimming pool and an amusement park. State-controlled leisure for a community that worked hard but played in moderation under the scrutiny of Soviet surveillance. But it did have a football team, FC Stroitl Pripyat. Sport played an important role in Soviet society and was incorporated by the state into the daily lives of its citizens. I have people working in four shifts and there's no place for them to go and rest explained Vasily Kazima, the director of construction. Let them go and watch some football and drink some beer. Pripyat's ground stood in the shadows of the town's residential housing blocks. The pitch was surrounded by a running track with a hut for a dressing room and a small wooden stand. 
The stadium was often full of spectators, even with the club in the amateur fifth tier of the Soviet football league system. In Pripyat, everyone loved football. Defender Alexander Vishnevsky told Soviet Sport. 2,000 of them came to watch. Visible in the distance beyond the boundary fence was the 500-foot-high chimney stack of Chernobyl's reactor number four. Chernobyl opened in 1977 and Stroitl Pripyat became a works team as a result. The side's youngest player, Valentin Litvin, was still at school at the time. One of six brothers, all of them decent players. He was born in the nearby village of Chistogolovka and studied in Pripyat. I remember one episode in the ninth grade. Valentin Litvin speaking to Valery Skurdolov of Discover Chernobyl. I was taking an algebra exam and I was supposed to play in a game. Our teacher looked out the window and said, who are they waiting for? There was a bus and the team was waiting for me. All of them grown men. In 1978, after graduating from school, Litvin began working as an engineer at Chernobyl. Like most Pripyat players, he was paid a small football allowance, two rubles and 50 kopecks. Today worth roughly £3.25 for district games and five rubles, £6.50 for regional matches on top of his power plant wage. But some of his teammates were ringers, brought in from around the region specifically to play football. These were called snowdrops. Valentin Litvin again. They got their nickname because just like the white wildflowers in question, they arrived late in winter. They received salaries from the power plant and were listed on the payroll, but they didn't do any work. Backed by the power plant and with snowdrops among their ranks, Pripyat pushed for promotion to the professional fourth tier. In 1981, they appointed former Soviet striker Anatoly Shepel as manager, a man with a skilled player's pedigree from Dynamo Kiev. That was the moment when our team began to take shape. Valentin Litvin again, who would later become captain. Pripyat, playing in white shirts and blue shorts, won the regional cup competition in 1981, 82 and 83, but struggled in the league and remained stuck in the fifth tier. In 1986, the club built a new ground, the Avangard Stadium, better facilities, floodlights and a large covered stand. Once finished, it would hold 11,000 fans. But at the time, the authorities were planning to build a fifth reactor at Chernobyl. Many high-ranking officials believed a new reactor could be an industrial game-changer, but not everyone was so enamoured with the idea of expanding the city's nuclear footprint. Even the director of construction, Vasily Kizima, knew the importance of a working community's downtime. The stadium is as important for the city as the reactor. The ground was due to officially open on May 1st, 1986. But before that... Pripyat were scheduled to play a cup semi-final match against Borodyanka on April 26th. a.m. April 26th, 1986. 
Chernobyl's number four nuclear reactor exploded. People in Pripyat saw a flash, followed by an earth-shattering boom. A raging fire could be seen through the darkness and firefighters were dispatched. This was not the first incident at Chernobyl. A partial core meltdown had occurred in 1982 and it was assumed that it would soon be over. The locals stood outside to watch the fire as ash dropped from the sky. After sunrise, with the fire dampened, residents got on with their lives. They went shopping, made preparations for the May Day Parade and headed to the football ground for the big match. Valentin Litvin had spent the night with family in Yampol, several miles away. His wife was in hospital in Pripyat due to complications following the birth of their second child, while the family looked after the baby. He returned to Pripyat for training at 9am but was stopped by the police at the entrance to the town. I asked them what had happened, but they didn't know anything, so I crossed the bridge and went to the stadium. The sun was shining, and Litvin recalls seeing people strolling past with their children. A street vendor was selling vegetables. They were unaware that Chernobyl had experienced the worst accident in the history of nuclear power. The only real indication that something was wrong was the sight of slow-moving vehicles from the plant, spraying roads with decontaminant. Pripyat would not be evacuated for 36 hours. At the stadium, Litvin met the other players and coaches, who told him Borodyanka's squad had been stopped some distance outside of Chernobyl. So, Litvin went to the team headquarters to find out if the match was off. The headquarters were located in a nine-storey tower block. Shortly after he got there, one of the coaches turned up and told Litvin about the helicopter landing on the pitch. Litvin went up onto the roof. I could see the nuclear power plant and the smoke rising above the ruins of reactor number four. His thoughts switched from football to his wife. He rushed to the hospital where she told him what had happened the previous night. Of course she hadn't seen everything. There was noise, fuss, doctors running across the building looking for infusion sets which they were short of and victims arriving one after another. His wife couldn't be discharged, so they took matters into their own hands. We had to stage an escape. Litvin helped her climb out through a ground floor window. We saw patients from the hospital standing on a hill, where they had a good view of the plant and could watch as helicopters dropped materials into the destroyed reactor. The couple left Pripyat on a motorcycle, passing long queues of empty buses. They were waiting for the command to come into town and start the evacuation. The background radiation level was already very high. The buses didn't arrive until noon the following day, April 27th. From Chernobyl's power plant control room to the highest tier of Soviet authority, the cause of reactor number four's catastrophe was kept a secret, or at best, a murky catalogue of conjecture. The truth remained a mystery. The information, apart from being unavailable, was unbelievable. Litvin again. I, like many others, believed the reactor simply could not explode. The outside world eventually heard about the accident on April 28th when high radiation levels were detected 800 miles away in Sweden. The Chernobyl disaster released at least 400 times more radioactive material than the Hiroshima nuclear bomb. A 19-mile exclusion zone was set up around the plant and the people of Pripyat were never allowed to return to their homes, with many relocated around 30 miles away to the town of Slabutich.
Several Pripyat players, including Alexander Vishnevsky, set up a new club called FC Stroitl Slavutic. Valentin Litvin ended up in Obukov and began playing for FC Zarya Vadislavka. Another evacuated footballer was future Milan and Chelsea striker Andriy Shevchenko, then a nine-year-old at Dynamo Kiev's academy. Kiev was the nearest major city to Chernobyl, so Shevchenko and the rest of the kids were taken 250 miles south to a training camp on the Black Sea coast. Despite everything, football continued. On May 2nd, less than a week after the accident, Dynamo Kiev played Atletico Madrid in the European Cup Winners' Cup final in Lyon. As far as the events of Chernobyl go, Dynamo coach Valery Lobanovsky. My players were aware of it, but not disturbed in their preparation for the match. Dynamo, with a side including Soviet stars Oleg Blokkin, Vasily Ratz and Igor Belanov, beat Atletico 3-0. Back at Chernobyl, there was a lot of work to be done. Both Alexander Vishnevsky and Valentin Litvin acted as liquidators during the recovery and cleanup operation. Litvin helped decontaminate the power plant's basements, where high radiation levels allowed only a few minutes of exposure and deadly pieces of graphite from the exploded reactor core fell from the roof. The liquidators carried radiation maps and dosimeters to limit their exposure, but Litvin says they often had to exceed safety limits to get the job done. Around 600,000 men and women were involved in the cleanup which was brave and dangerous work that ultimately saved much of Europe from becoming uninhabitable. One liquidator, helicopter pilot Eduard Korotkov, recalled circling over the damaged reactor for two hours each day that summer, then watching football on television at night. The World Cup was on. Korotkov reveals in oral history book, Chernobyl Prayer. So we talked a lot about football. According to Soviet sport, in the aftermath of the disaster, Football was the only comfort for the people. The Soviet side in Mexico included Dynamo Kiev triumvirate Blotkin, Rats and Belanov and was led by Dynamo boss Lobanovsky, who again tried to play down an event that remained shrouded in secrecy. I think our government has given out all the facts to reporters about what really happened after the campaign spread by the international press. After thrashing Hungary 6-0 and topping their group, the Soviets lost 4-3 after extra time to Belgium in the last 16, despite a Belenov hat-trick in Lyon. The successor to FC Pripyat, FC Slavutic, had a short-lived existence. The new outfit competed in the Amateur League in 1987 and 1988, but then disbanded. Players and fans have been dispersed all over the region and many were preoccupied with the liquidation of Chernobyl. Many people from Pripyat and the exclusion zone became sick and died. And while the official Soviet death toll from the accident is 31, other estimates place the figure significantly higher. The United Nations calculates a death toll higher than 60,000. Today, Pripyat's never-used avant-garde stadium stands as a relic to matches never played. A curious mausoleum of unknown potential. But it's a busy tourist attraction. The floodlights are rusted and the pitch is overgrown. Just another ghost of progress in a deserted radioactive city being reclaimed by nature. Valery Skudolov runs the Discover Chernobyl Facebook page and works as a tour guide in Pripyat and the Exclusion Zone. The stadium is often visited by tourists. He tells FFT. 
Although the field is covered by trees. One visitor taken into the exclusion zone was Valentin Litvin, now a pensioner, but still playing football and refereeing locally. It was the first time he'd been back to Pripyat since 1986. The Chernobyl disaster has been shrouded in subterfuge and fiction since reactor number four exploded in 1986. The cost of human lives is immeasurable because there was never an official death toll beyond 31. The impact of the disaster will resonate for centuries to come, way beyond the immediate fallout. Five years after the incident, Mikhail Gorbachev is quoted to have said that Chernobyl was instrumental in the collapse of the Soviet Union. But for FC Stroitl Pripyat, it merely cancelled a football match. A game where for 90 minutes there is only truth. A game that Soviet composer Dmitry Shostakovich described as the ballet for the masses. Under the scrutiny of thousands of energized supporters, the game plays out in truth. The truth of two teams and a ball. There's nowhere to hide on a football pitch. Even if the referee makes a bad call, nobody's going to the gulag. The Chernobyl cleanup project is scheduled to finish in 2065, and experts believe the exclusion zone will be contaminated for another 3,000 years. No one's going to be playing football in Pripyat anytime soon. Chernobyl FC, The Lost Football Team, is a 442 podcast. Written by Paul Brown, script editor, producer and narrator Grant Fulton. Sound design, editing and production Pete Morder at Phonotech. Other voices were provided by Lyle Fulton, Russell Hay and Pete Morder. Get more stories like this every month in 442 magazine. The executive producer is James Brown and 442 podcasts are overseen by Steve Morgan and Connor Pope. The website is 442.com and you can follow us on Twitter at 442, Instagram at 442UK and Facebook.com slash 442. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.